Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. This is the second week of our Let Me Explain sermon series. The genesis behind this series was this. Uh, we kind of wanted to think about uh, uh, Christian apologetics, but really from the standpoint of being better grounded as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ in the why we believe, what we believe. So you would all agree that it is significantly important that we know the why behind the what, yes? So as followers of Jesus, when we're contending for the faith and introducing other people to the core conviction that we hold, we want to be able to well articulate, to defend and define, here is the why we believe what we believe. And the idea being this, that if somebody says, you know, Connor, why is it that you believe in the Bible? Then I want to be able to take them by the hand, buy them a cup of coffee or a hamburger and say, well, let me explain. And today, let me explain to you why we believe that Jesus is the only way. And uh, I know that the moment that I make that statement, that I am essentially uh, uh, making a declaration or a whole, uh, sharing with you a conviction that I hold that is... Uh, uh, really not held widely by very many people in our culture at large. In fact, it can often be viewed as an inflammatory statement. It is an opinion that many would say um, is, is, is one that is uh, um, rude. It is one that it is uh, uh, insensitive. It is one that is ultimately, some would argue, hateful at its core. Uh, when I lived in the Metroplex, I listened a lot to sports radio. And uh, one of the things I enjoyed about sports radio was that the commentators or the hosts of the shows would often issue what they called hot sports opinions. And uh, these are essentially just personal convictions or, or personal takes regarding uh, a sports subject matter. So who is the greatest of all time? What's the best team? What's the best league? Who's the most competitive? And, and so it would say things like, you know, who's the greatest NBA basketball player of all time? Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? And obviously we know it's Michael Jordan. And the idea is, uh, by the way, don't, seriously, you can't. But the, the idea here is that they would issue hot sports opinions. ESPN has got entire shows dedicated to the commentators uh, spouting off their hotly held uh, opinions. And since the resurrection of Jesus, the most hotly held opinion in all of history is that Jesus is the only way. Now, at first, the exclusive claim of Christ was met with great resistance and hostility because essentially it was considered blasphemous. Here's what I mean. Like with the religious of that day, and again, even in a pagan Roman culture, they, they worshipped a plurality of deities or gods. Uh, to hold to the exclusivity of Jesus alone as the only way would have been an offense to anyone who worshipped in any way that is contrary to that. But also to the Jewish people, it would have been an offense because they did not see Jesus as Messiah, and therefore he could not have been any way, much less the only way. So that's why many of the first century Christians, many of the early uh, believers and founders of the church uh, were martyred for their unapologetic allegiance to Jesus Christ. But listen, today the exclusive claim of Christ is met with hostility, not because it is seen as blasphemous, but because it is a hot opinion and it is viewed as hateful. This argument for the exclusivity of Christ as hateful, as being unjust, or as somehow unfair is based upon the fallacy that there cannot be any absolute truth. And here's what I mean. Obviously, to argue for the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus is the only way, 
you are making a claim to an absolute truth that it is in him and in him alone that a person might be saved. This is core fundamental doctrine to the Christian faith. But if you compare that to, say, universalism, which is the idea that there are many ways for a person to be saved, whatever salvation looks like for that system of view, that, that there are many ways by which that person uh, might be saved or enter into that salvation experience. Well, that's universalism. It's built on the idea that because there are many ways, that there can't be a single way. Well, when you argue that there are many ways, you are making an absolute declaration to anyone who holds to any way that is different than that. And if you think about relativism, relativism is the idea uh, that there are no uh, absolute truth and that uh, moralism or, or truth is... Uh, is circumstantial or experiential. So, in other words, based on what you uh, do or what you have experienced or what has happened to you or where you are, that would be relative to what it is that you believe and would inform there how a person then might be saved. Well, that idea is, is built on the uh, uh, fallacy that there cannot be any absolute truth. But here's the problem with that argument. The problem with that argument is that when you declare there are no absolute truths, you have just said an absolute truth. Does that make sense? So to make the declaration that there is no absolute truth is a declaration of an absolute truth. And so the argument immediately falls apart on itself. I read uh, an ancient Hindu proverb which spoke about five men that had gone exploring in a very dark cave. And uh, upon entering that cave, they couldn't see and they ran into an elephant, only they did not realize that's what it was. Because one guy reached out and he grabbed his trunk and he said, this, whatever it is we've run into, it, it's a snake and I can feel it. It's right in front of me. Another guy was holding on to the tail and he said, it's not a snake, it's a rope. And I could feel it because it's right in front of me. Another guy was holding on to the ear and he said, it's a big fan. I could feel it because it's right in front of me. Another guy was holding on to the leg and he said, it's a tree. I can feel it. It's right in front of me. Another guy's leaning against the body and he said, we've hit a boulder. It's like a wall. I can feel it because it's right in front of me. Here's the issue. Jesus Christ is the elephant. And the Bible says that he has brought light into the world so that we're no longer grappling at what our own experiences might lead us to believe, but that God has clearly revealed who he is and the plan that he has made. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, everybody else is just feeling their way in the dark. But God has sent Jesus so that we might know that which is True, but as a disciple of Christ, based on what we believe about the Bible, and again, last week, we declared that the Bible is the foundation for the believer. It is inspired by God. It is reliable for us. It is authoritative for our life, transformational in our hearts. Then you and I need to be people of the Bible who should know what the Bible says about the exclusive claim of Jesus. Don't you think it matters that if we're a Bible-believing people, that we discover what the Bible says about Jesus? I want to give you a few places where you can look. Uh, you don't have to turn there in your scriptures. I'm going to give you a place where we're going to look together in a moment. But if you're taking notes, let me encourage you to reference a bunch of scriptures that we're going to look up today. The first is in John's gospel in chapter 3, verse 36. This is what the apostle John writes. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, here's what's interesting. The Apostle John, the author of this gospel bearing his name, uh, wrote this just a couple of decades after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. And John writes and says, whoever has the Son has eternal life. In other words, that person has been saved. And whoever does not have the Son, God's wrath remains on him or on her. So John, who was persecuted for holding to an exclusive belief in Jesus Christ alone articulates that there is no other way for a person to be saved. Again, you got Jesus, you got life. You don't have Jesus, you got God's wrath. Okay, but what about Peter? 
You know, you know how significant Peter was in the first century church. Well, did you know that he stood up in the middle of a very religious room in front of what the Bible would call the Sanhedrin? This was like the Jewish uh, council. It was the most religious among the most religious. And Peter stands up in the middle of that religious group, in the middle of that audience, and makes a declaration arguing that Jesus is the only way. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, so John has already said, you got the son, you got life. You don't have the son, you got God's wrath. And then Peter stands up in the middle of this really religious audience, and he says, there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It's Jesus alone. Now, Peter was the father of the New Testament church. Peter was the impetuous guy who had gone from denying Jesus to being restored to Jesus and then preaching the proclamation at Pentecost where a few thousand people are born again. This is Peter, and he's standing up knowing that he's likely going to face death for it, and he says, there's nobody else. It's just Jesus. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Okay, think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes a letter to the first century church in Rome. And in Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 9, Paul, again, says this. He says, uh, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you'll be saved. Now, here's why that's significant. Because for a Roman citizen or a Christian trying to live out their faith in Rome, The only person that was allowed by declaration of law to be called Lord was Caesar. And Paul says, listen, it's going to cost you your life. You are going to go against the Roman government and what has been decreed by law. But I'm telling you, if you confess Jesus as Lord, which means you are confessing that Caesar is not, then you'll be saved. Paul says, it's Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus Caesar, just like it's not Jesus plus any political official today. It's just Jesus. John said it. Peter said it. Paul said it. But listen, most importantly, Jesus said it. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is speaking. So listen, it's one thing when John says it. It carries a great deal of weight when Peter stands up and declares. Listen, you got to hear the power when Paul writes to Roman persecuted Christians and says it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But then speaking of himself, Jesus says, I'm the only way. It's just me. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. So listen, this is the declaration of the Bible. This isn't just the conviction that Pastor Connor holds. This is what God's Word says about Jesus and then why we contend that He is the only way. And, and I, I want to be fair to you this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to be able to articulate well the why behind the what, especially in comparison to other systems of belief and faith systems around the world. So I'm going to give you the top five systems of faith outside of Christianity so that you might know how they would argue a person can be saved. Islam. Islam, did you know, teaches that everyone is uh, born morally neutral and that Allah is who determines their destiny. The Quran reveals that no true Muslim can know with any absolute certainty what is their eternal destiny. And according to ancient Islamic writings, uh, even the central prophet of Islam, Muhammad himself, was uncertain of his eternal destiny. Islam is based on a salvation that cannot be known. Okay, how about Hinduism? 
Hinduism teaches that everybody can be saved through self-realization or through personal enlightenment. That this enlightenment comes through personal works leading to good karma, or it can come by meditation, which is how you can overcome a fleshly desire. Enlightenment might also be obtained through one's reincarnation over many lifetimes. Hinduism offers a salvation that is by works. How about Buddhism? Buddhism was birthed out of Hinduism, and it teaches that anyone can be saved or they can reach nirvana by believing in the four noble truths. That is the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path of the cessation of suffering. Additionally, uh, one must also follow the noble eightfold path to reach nirvana, making Buddhism a salvation of human effort. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that salvation comes from faith in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for sin. The issue is that they believe Jesus to be a God and not to be the God. And only as a created being and not the eternal God did he provide this saving work for sin. The four requirements for a Jehovah's Witness to experience salvation is to believe in accurate knowledge to avoid debauchery, to be a Jehovah's Witness, and to proselytize others into the faith. Likewise, then, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a salvation that is built on personal works. And Mormonism. Mormonism teaches faith in Jesus and repentance from sin as a prelude to salvation. Their 12 steps of salvation for male members of the Mormon faith are, and I quote, faith, repentance, baptism into the Mormon church, the laying on of hands by a member of the Melchizedek priesthood to receive the Holy Ghost, ordination as a Melchizedek priest, celestial marriage, receiving temple endowments, observing the word of wisdom, sustaining the prophet, tithing, sacrament meetings, and obedience, making Mormonism a salvation by human work alone. And here's why I bring this up. Because the exclusive claim of Christianity that Jesus is the only way is also the only system of religious belief or the only worldview which can be held whereby God himself has made a way for man to be saved and have eternal life. In every other system of belief, God is either deciding about the eternity of man with no way for man to know what that decision might be or man is working and meditating and practicing their way in an effort to get to God. And listen, Christianity is the declaration that Jesus Christ has come for us. It's altogether different. I read an article this week about the uh, stand-in for Tom Cruise, the famous Hollywood actor, um, Evidently, there's an individual that gets this uh, job opportunity often because he has the same build and uh, stature as uh, the actor Tom Cruise. And so this guy uh, works uh, tirelessly and crazy hours in very unusual settings uh, for the purposes of providing the stand-in services of the famous actor Tom Cruise. And here's what that means. So They will mark a spot when they're shooting for a scene, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, hot outside or if it's freezing cold outside or if it's raining where they're filming that day. This individual will stand in one location while the lighting crew and the production crew and the film crew all get set up with their elaborate details ensuring that they have got everything needed to take the shot. And when they're ready... And all this time and this energy and this effort has been made, then they will signal for Tom to leave his air-conditioned trailer with security and a couple of personal assistants in tow, and he will make his way onto the set where he will then film that scene and retire to his trailer again. Listen, do you realize that Jesus Christ is the eternal stand-in? And that what you and I receive is God's grace that allows us 
to, to experience salvation that we have not earned, that Jesus is the one who has taken the beating and received the elements of sin and the corruption of God's punishment and wrath, and that you and I are just the recipients who get to be heralded like a celebrity. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what separates Christianity from any other system of belief. And it is important that when you and I think about this, we be able to understand the why behind the what. And so with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Acts chapter 17, where we're going to begin reading today starting in verse 22. Acts chapter 17 in verse 22, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can look on your device, or we always put a copy of the Scriptures on the screen. Now, here's where we are in Acts. Um, the book of Acts records a great deal of the uh, New Testament mission efforts of the Apostle Paul. And uh, in one particular area where Paul went, it was in Athens, Greece. And uh, Athens was a unique city. It, it was a a place where scholars and philosophers, Stoics, and, and really critical thinkers of that day gathered together for philosophical and religious uh, debate. It was uh, an idea of higher philosophical, uh, a location of higher philosophical education, where, again, there was a great place where uh, arguments could be made contending for different systems of of view. And, and so in one particular place there in Athens, there was a, a rocky outcropping. And uh, in that place, it was known as the Areopagus, or it was called, translated as Mars Hill. Um, this is where the philosophers and the Stoics and the critical thinkers of that day would have gathered together for sharing their system of thought and for debating one another in that. You have to believe that must have been because the rocky outcropping, maybe it was comfortable for seating or it was good for acoustics, but this is the area where these kinds of thinkers would gather for uh, the debate of that particular day. And this is where Paul shows up to contend for his faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the Bible says, Acts 17, starting in verse 22. If you're there, say, I got it. So Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, here's what's fascinating, and I think there's a lesson to be learned here. Um, the Apostle Paul is a brilliant apologist, and here's how we know. The first thing he does in his uh, attempt to contend for his faith is that he finds the common ground with his audience to whom he is speaking. Did you notice that Paul says, I perceive that you are very religious? Here's what Paul's saying. Um, I, I, I get like, look, like looking around, at, by the way, y'all have a beautiful city. I love Athens. Just The food has been incredible. Thank you so much. But I can't help but notice all of the statues and all of the uh, uh, perceived deities uh, that are all around the city that have been scattered throughout. So I'm, you guys must be a really spiritual people. And, and I'm a spiritual person. And I even noticed in one, that one area of your city, there was actually an inscription uh, at a shrine uh, to an unknown God. And, and so, because you're a spiritual people and I'm a spiritual person, what you worship as being unknown, I've come to Athens to proclaim to you. Do you see what he did? Paul found the common ground. Brothers and sisters, listen, if we are going to rightly contend for the faith, we have to do so, the Bible says, with gentleness and respect. One of the ways to do that is to find common ground. So we don't bulldoze people right? But we find some common ground whereby we can then, in love, engage them. Like, this is important for us in our day and age because Facebook and social media have brought on the onslaught of verbal terrorism 140 characters at a time, right? And, and this is not what Paul does. Paul finds common ground. He says, oh man, you, you're a spiritual person. So this would be a way of engaging someone. Like I, I have done this a number of times. I've seen somebody with a tattoo. Maybe they'll have a cross. Maybe they'll have some symbol. And I'll say, hey, what, is that, what does that symbol mean? Or tell me about your cross. And then depending, oh man, that's cool. So you're spiritual. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. I'm spiritual too. Tell me about that. 
Where's your faith? What do you think about that? And how'd you get there? Do you see what I'm saying? So common ground, right? And then from that place of common ground, then you can build out your case for what you believe. And this is what Paul does. And then he goes on in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul says, so I perceive you're a spiritual people, okay? I'm a spiritual person, but what you worship is unknown. I've come to proclaim to you, and that is this, that you're spiritual because you're searching for the uncaused cause, You're spiritual because you're searching for something that is underneath it all. You're spiritual because you're searching for something that is beyond what it is that you can understand. You're searching, and I'm here to tell you that his name is God. I'm here to tell you that there is a God who is underneath everything that you're trying to explain away. I'm here to tell you that there is a God that has given you the very curiosity that you have to search out, which is the evidence of your being a spiritual people. And then he goes on, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul says, so here's our commonality. You're a spiritual people, I'm a spiritual person. And then he says, and by the way, the curiosity that you have to look for the uncaused cause, God gave you that. And and by the way, this God who is underneath it all, who is behind it all, who is outside of it all, this God is not distant. He's very near. Our God is not some distant deity. He is a very intimate Savior. And then Paul begins to build his case. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now think about the way in which Paul builds this case. Common ground, curiosity, God isn't far, and his name is Jesus. See what he did? And so I want this morning to build an apologetic on why Jesus is the only way. And I think the Apostle Paul helps us to do that. If you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down. There's something unique about what it is that we believe. There's something distinct about being a follower of Jesus Christ and arguing for the exclusivity of a belief in him. The first thing that makes that unique is that Jesus is entirely unique in his humanity. He's entirely unique in his humanity. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was a baby, he nursed from his mother. When Jesus was a preteen, he got lost from his parents. As an adult, when Jesus was tired, he slept. When he was hungry, he ate. When he lost his friend Lazarus, he cried. But I want to give you some theological reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to be a human. Why it was necessary for the humanity of Christ. The first reason it was necessary is for representative obedience. As a man, Jesus lived a sinless life as the representative for all humanity who could not. Do you recognize and would you be willing to admit today that you have not lived a sinless life? A, f- a few of you, yeah. Okay, let me just say, wives, would you be honest and tell me your husband is a sinner? Amen, right? Okay, so listen, all of us are sinners. The Bible says in... Uh, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, there is an expectation of sinlessness, but you and I have been unable to fulfill that. Listen, Jesus is the human representative who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do you understand? This is why Romans, um, I'm sorry, this is why Hebrews 4 verses 14 and 15 says, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus is our representative obedience. Jesus has done as a human representative what you and I have been unable. You know, every uh, few years we elect uh, uh, officials to represent us as constituents in our state, in our local government, and yes, even at a national level. And these men and women are charged with being a representation of a people. That's what Jesus is. He is the ultimate representation. But look, he is the representation of human obedience. Because you and I could not. We are not. We're messed up. And we failed. And Jesus is the representation of human obedience that is the expectation God has for us. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus was sinless, but he lived as though he were, were a sinner. He died as though he were a sinner. So it was necessary for representative obedience. It was necessary that Jesus be human as a substitutionary sacrifice. As a man, Jesus not only served as the representative for humanity, but he substituted himself as our sacrifice for our sins. That's why Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation is the idea of appeasement. That Jesus is the substitutionary sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Fully satisfying what was due to God through the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Armageddon with Bruce Willis. Terrible movie. It's one of Todd's favorites. It's awful. Um, and uh, at the end of Armageddon, um, Bruce Willis... And the guys uh, draw straws to see who is going to have to stay behind on the asteroid uh, and detonate the nuclear weapon to save the Earth from uh, uh, total annihilation. It was based on a true story. So. <laughs> so they draw straws, and Bruce Willis's son-in-law, Ben Affleck, draws the short straw. And so he's going to be the one that has to stay behind and, and detonate the nuke, and everybody else is going to get to fly home and be saved, okay? Well, at the last moment, and by the way, if you haven't seen this movie, this, here's why this is not a spoiler. It's been out like two decades, for God's sake, all right? <laughs> so at the last moment, Bruce Willis grabs his oxygen tube and yanks it off of Ben Affleck, and, and, and disabling his ability to breathe and then forces him back up into the spaceship uh, so he can go home and he'll be safe. And Bruce Willis says, no, I'll do this. I'll stay. And he saves, saves Ben and everybody else on earth. Listen, brothers and sisters, I want you to know um, sin has every one of us holding the short straw. Like you with me? Like our sin, everybody's holding the short straw. That's the one thing we got in common. We've agreed to that. And, and Jesus has shoved every single one of us into eternity and said, I'll take their place and die in there so they don't have to. That's, that's the reality. He's a substitutionary sacrifice. He substitutes his life for ours. Here's the other reason why I would argue for the necessity of the humanity of Jesus. Because only a man could mediate between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 says... For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Listen, as a man, Jesus was the mediator between God and men, and he did this for all of us. It was unique, but it was necessary that Jesus was a man. Listen, here's the second thing I would say that makes Christianity different. Not only the uniqueness of his humanity, but I would argue for the uniqueness of his divinity. Jesus is unique in his divinity, in verse 24 of Acts 17, Paul says that the God who made the earth and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. That word Lord in the Greek language, it's the same word that Jesus uses to describe himself when he says, on that day in Matthew chapter 7, many of you will call, 
Come to me and you will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out many demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, prophesy in your name? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I do not know you. Jesus uses this word, Lord, to describe himself as God. It's the same word that Paul uses to talk about Jesus as Lord of heaven and of earth. The divinity of Jesus is riddled throughout the scriptures. So listen. It is important that we understand this because it's fundamental to what we believe. He is not a God. He is the God. And here's why it matters. Because only God can satisfy the demands of God. Only God can satisfy the demands of God. If the offense of sin is a violation of God's law and therefore it is against him, then the payment for that sin penalty can only be satisfied by God himself. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of, help me, God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the standard of the glory of the expectation of the rule of God. Everybody has fallen short of the standard of God. Okay, well then the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for falling short of the glory of God is death, Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We don't get what we deserve, but rather God gives us uh, eternal life because Jesus Christ took the wage for our sin. Only God can satisfy the demands of of God. The very necessity of God being required to die for our sin speaks to the gravity of it and the depth of his grace that covers it. You know, um, I am a master negotiator. I don't know if I should brag about it because it's probably rooted in, my, in the fact that I'm cheap. Um, but I, I don't believe in paying full price for anything. I think everything's negotiable. Drives Mary crazy. Um, in fact, a few years ago, we went to Best Buy to buy a washer and dryer and it, Mary got so awkward, she left the store. <laughs> but we got a washer and dryer and didn't pay full price for it. Can I get a witness? <laughs> All right. But here's the cool thing. You see, Jesus didn't negotiate our salvation. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't say, God, if you'll, just, if you'll maim me, I'll limp around eternity for them. God, if you'll, if, you know, if you'll just take, if you'll take off an arm or if you'll just maybe, maybe punish me for a season, just, there's no negotiation. He paid the full price. O only God can satisfy the demands of God. The, aren't, aren't you grateful that salvation isn't up to you and me? Because I know me. I'd be like, hey, how about if, right, this is what we do. What if I just, what if I stop saying that word? What if I stop seeing that girl? What if I stop spending my money that way? If I, God, if you'll do this, I promise you I'll do that. We're, right? We're, we're negotiating all the time. Jesus didn't do that. Look at me. This is the gospel. Jesus said, what is owed? God said, death, my death. Jesus said, I'll pay it in full. Only God can satisfy the demands of God. The second reason why I would argue for the necessity of his divinity is because salvation comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. This is fundamental to Christian doctrine. Ready? You can't save you. If you take no other note today, write that down. You can't save you. This is a work that is reserved for God. Why? Because he's the only one that can do it. Which is why Jonah 2 verse 9 says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. How about Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen, why do you think the Apostle Paul writes with that specificity? Because he knows our tendency. He says, you have been saved by grace through faith, comma, and you didn't do it. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like he's writing to me. He's like, comma, Connor, and you had nothing to do with it. 
Jesus Christ saved you. God awakened your heart and rescued you. He has done the heavy lifting of redeeming you from sin and buying you back from God's eternal wrath. You did nothing to save you. That work belongs to God. Okay, like, you've never seen a surgeon operating on themselves. Right? Okay, but listen, brothers and sisters, why have we gotten it twisted in the church whereby we think we can fix ourselves? Right? Like if we got appendicitis, I'm not going to the ER today and be like, hey, scalpel. Because I can't. I can't fix me. You can't fix you. This is God's work. This is God's work. He has done this work for us. And this is what makes his divinity so necessary is salvation belongs to the Lord. The third reason I would argue for the necessity of the divinity of Jesus, and that is because only God can conquer death, hell, and the grave. Only God can conquer death, hell, and the grave. Paul says in verse 31 of Acts 17 that there's a day coming when a man is going to judge the world, and the assurance of this is that that man has been physically raised from the dead. You know who the resurrected man is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. How do we know this? Well, when Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Look at me. Only God can do that. You and I can't resurrect anything. But listen, if you think your marriage is dead, you think your finances are dead, you think your future is dead, God can resurrect. You and I can't breathe new life into those things, but God does that. I've seen him resurrect marriage after marriage after marriage. I've seen him resurrect people's finances. I've seen him resurrect people's future. I've seen him resurrect people's health. I've seen him resurrect people's thinking. I've seen him resurrect people's mental uh, capacity. I've seen God resurrect. He breathes dead things to life. This is what he does. Only God can do that. Only God can conquer death, hell, and the grave. Which is the reason why it's unique that Jesus was divine. So he's unique in his humanity, he's unique in his divinity, and Jesus is unique in his atonement. He's unique in his atonement. Listen, through his death on the cross, Jesus atoned for our sins. The word atone is the idea of paying for. Jesus satisfied the payment due to God when he atoned for our sins sins. This is why the Bible would say in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Bible says by his wounds you have been healed. How about in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. How about Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, which says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Listen, and time wouldn't even permit me to tell you of all of the other places in the Scripture that speak to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But if you happen to be a student of God's Word, and my prayer is that after last week, you are, then can I commend to your reading this week, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Can I commend to your reading this week, Hebrews 9, 22, 1 Peter 3, 18. Can I commend to your reading this week, Matthew 26, 28, John 3, 16 and 17, Hebrews 7, 27, or Acts 20, 28. Can I commend to your reading this week, Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Just to name a few of the places you can go to read of the glorious atoning work of Jesus Christ. If you want to take a picture of this, I'll leave it up for just a moment so you can. Enough of you got your phones up. I'm not presuming you're taking mine, okay? <laughs> Jesus is unique in his atonement. 
And when we talk about his atonement, I think there are two realities that we must embrace. The first is, what is the extent of the atonement? Well, when we talk about the extent of the atonement, we talk about the extent in two ways. The first is, it's covering for sinners. So the Bible is clear that Jesus died for all once. His death in our place and for our sins, which is why 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, the effect of the atonement of Jesus is unlimited in its power. He died for the sins of the world. There is not a single sinner that you know that cannot be bought back from their sin by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Not one. It is unlimited in its power because the extent of Jesus' atonement is for all sinners. And listen, it's unlimited in its power because the extent of Jesus' atonement is for all sin. Now, I want you to lean in here for just a moment. Look up here at me. Some of you here this morning, you're carrying around some shame and some guilt and some condemnation that you've been holding on to for decades. Convinced that God can't forgive what you've done. I want... The extent of the atonement is unlimited in its power for sinners and for sin. There is not a single thing that you have done that God's grace cannot cover. There is nothing. And, and I, know, I know what the enemy has been whispering. I know that the enemy has been telling you if they only knew. If she only knew. If they could ever see, if it ever was found out, if you ever were discovered, then you would see that God hasn't forgiven you of that. And brothers and sisters, I am telling you that is a lie from the pit of hell. You cannot out God's grace. It covers everything. If it didn't, he's not God. He covers everything. And so I don't know what your dad told you. I don't know what the enemy has whispered. I don't know what you've been carrying around these last few days, these last few weeks, these last few months, or these last few years. But I am telling you, you have not out God's love. The evidence of his grace is poured out in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you're saved. Because if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of them and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. So I don't want the enemy to have a field day anymore. Let's reclaim that ground between our ears. And let's be reminded that the extent of the atonement is for all sinners and sin alike. When we surrender it to Jesus. When we talk about the atonement, we definitely talk talk about its extent, but we should talk about its effect. It's holistic means it changes all of us, not just some of us, right? So you understand the holistic, complete nature of the atoning work of Jesus is that it fully satisfied the wrath of God. That Jesus himself was the propitiation, the appeasement of our sin. That he's the substitutionary sacrifice in our place. That he reconciles us to God and that he is in the business of redeeming all things back to himself. So how do we understand this to work? Well, I found a picture this week of a car that's been refurbished. Pretty impressive, isn't it? So the car, obviously, on the left is in the condition when it was found. It's got no engine. It doesn't run. It's rusted. It's corroded. I mean, the elements have destroyed that car, and it looks really, really bad from the inside out. The picture on the right is the after. Somebody meticulously 
gave a great deal of time, gave a great deal of money, gave a great deal of effort to refurbishing and restoring that antique automobile. Okay, so let me love you well enough to tell you what this represents. The picture on the left is you and I before Jesus Christ. The picture on the right is how God sees us since he showed up. You with me? Like sin corroded us. It corrupted us from the inside out. This is the condition when, when we were. But on the right, man, the, the work of the Spirit of God changing us meticulously, grooming us and shaping us and molding us, this is how God sees us. And the only difference is that somebody was willing to put in the time and the energy and the effort to take what was nasty and torn up and worn out and make it new. And this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. So listen, he's altogether different, our Jesus. He's altogether necessary, our Jesus. And he is the only way for someone to be saved. The Baptist faith and message 2000 would speak about the exclusivity of Jesus. And I'll close with this quote. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So I'll just tell you, these are heavy days for me as a pastor. Because there will be a day when every one of us is going to stand before God and give an account of our lives and the things that have been entrusted to us. You recognize that? You realize that one of the questions I'll be asked is how well I shepherded the people of God that have been entrusted to my care. You. I'm going to get asked about you and about you and about you. And with a clear conscience before my maker, I want to be able to say to God that I pleaded the blood of Jesus Christ and I never presumed on the salvation of anyone that was in attendance with us. And so to that end, I'm just going to be as clear and explicit as I possibly can. And again, this is for my conscience before God. If you are not in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because you have professed your faith in him, then you are still dead in your trespasses and sin and the wrath of God remains on your life. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning you declare that you're a sinner and you make the confession that you believe Jesus Christ can be Savior. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, meaning that you transfer hope from self and circumstance into the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says you're saved. But I can't do this for you. This is a personal decision. Listen, I've said this all morning long. I'm going to say it again. God has no grandchildren. You cannot get into heaven on the coattails of your parents or a family member that came before. Your relationship has got to be your own. And so I'm going to ask every person in this room to be absolutely certain that you know Jesus is the only way because you have trusted in him as the only way for you.